Hello everybody, Connor J. Nepo here for another episode of Connor Reads, just another libertarian podcast. We are now up to part five in our reading of Brian Kaplan's Anarcho-Status of Spain. Today's section will cover a contrast between anarcho-capitalism and the sort of status socialism that the anarcho-syndicalists ended up implementing. So, let's get to work. The Dilemma, Part 1, Capitalist Anarchism Suppose that there were a standard capitalist economy in which a class of wealthy capitalists owned the means of production and hired the rest of the population as wage laborers. Through extraordinary effort, the workers in each factory save enough money to buy out their employers. The capitalist shares of stocks change hands so that the workers of each firm now own and control their workplace. Question. Is this still a capitalist society? Of course. There is still private property in the means of production. It simply has different owners than before. The economy functions the same way as it always did. Workers at each firm do their best to enrich themselves by selling desired products to customers. There is inequality due to both ability and luck. Firms compete for customers. Nothing changes but the recipient of the dividends. This simple thought experiment reveals the dilemma of the anarcho-socialist. If the workers seize control of their plants and run them as they wish, capitalism remains. The only way to suppress what socialists most despise about capitalism, greed, inequality, and competition, is to force the worker owners to do something that they are unlikely to do voluntarily. To do so requires a state, an organization with sufficient firepower to impose unselfishness, equality, and coordination upon recalcitrant workers. One can call the state a council, a committee, a union, or by any other euphemism. But the simple truth remains, socialism requires a state. A priori reasoning alone establishes this, but empiricists may be skeptical. Surely there is some middle way, which is both anarchist and socialist. To the contrary, the experience of Spanish anarchism could give no clearer proof that insofar as collectivization was anarchist, it was capitalist, and insofar as collectivization was socialist, it was statist. The only solution to this dilemma, if solution may, it may be called, is to retain the all-powerful state, but use a new word to designate it. An overwhelming body of evidence from a wide variety of sources confirms that when the workers really controlled their factories, capitalism merely changed in form. It did not cease to exist. Summarizing a CNT-UGT textile conference, Fraser explains that, quote, experience had already demonstrated that it was necessary to proceed rapidly towards the total socialization of the industry if ownership of the means of production was not once more to lead to man's exploitation of man. The works councils did not in practice know what to do with the means of production and lacked a plan for the whole industry. As far as the market was concerned, the decree had changed none of the basic capitalist defects except that whereas before it was the owners who competed amongst themselves, it is now the workers, end quote. Bulletin records that, quote, according to Daniel Guerin, an authority of the Spanish anarchist movement, it appeared that workers' self-management might lead to a kind of egotistical particularism, each enterprise being concerned solely with its own interests. As a result, the excess revenues of the bus company were used to support the streetcars, which were less profitable. But in actuality, there were many cases of inequality that could not be so easily resolved. End quote. Thomas affirms this picture, quote, 
Anarchists were willing to admit that the revolution had brought problems they had not dreamt of. The FAI leader, Abad de Santillan, then economic counselor in the General Adad, wrote candidly, We had seen in the private ownership of the means of production, of factories, of means of transport, in the capitalist apparatus of distribution, the main cause of misery and injustice. We wished the socialization of all wealth, so that not a single individual would be left out of the banquet of life. We have now done something, but we have not done it well. In place of the old owner, we have substituted a half dozen new ones who consider the factory, the means of transport which they control, as their own property, with the inconvenience that they do not always know how to organize, as well as the old." Fraser quotes Josep Costa, a CNT foreman outside of Barcelona, explaining why his union decided not to collectivize. And or quote, individual collectivized mills acted there from the beginning as though they were completely autonomous units, marketing their own products as they could and paying little heed to the general situation. It was a sort of popular capitalism. End quote. How, one might wonder, could avowed socialists act so contrary to their principles? The workers' behavior was not particularly different from that of a wealthy Marxist professor who lives in luxury while denouncing the refusal of the West to share its wealth with the third world. Talk is cheap. When the worker owners had the option to enrich themselves, they seized it with few regrets. The orthodox state socialist, even the CNT's would-be allies such as the POUM, bitterly attacked the capitalist nature of worker control. Frazier relays the opinion of POUM executive Juan Andrande, quote, The anarcho-syndicalist workers had made themselves owners of everything they collectivized. The collectives were treated as private, not social property. Socialization, as practiced by CNT unions, were no more than trade union capitalism. Although it was intermediately apparent, the economy as run by the CNT was a disaster. Had it gone on like that, there would have been enormous problems later with great disparities of wages and new social classes being formed. We also wanted to collectivize, but quite differently, so that the country's resources were administered socially, not as individual property. The sort of mentality which believes that the revolution is for the immediate benefit of a particular sector of the working class, and not for the proletariat as a whole, always surfaces in a revolution, as I realized in the first days of the war in Madrid." End quote. Andrade tells Frazier a striking story about the funeral of a POUM militant. Quote, the CNT Undertaker's Union presented the POUM with its bill. The younger POUM militants took the bill to Andrade in amazement. He called in the Undertaker's representatives. What's this? You want to collect a bill for your services while men are dying at the front, eh? I looked at the bill. Moreover, you've raised your prices. This is very expensive. Yes, the man agreed. We want to make improvements. I refused to pay, and when later two members of the union's committee turned up to press their case, we threw them out. But the example made me reflect on a particular working-class attitude to the revolution. End quote. The particular working-class attitude, to which Andrade refers, is just a view that the revolution is supposed to make the workers their own bosses. Many workers took the slogans about worker control literally. They overlooked the possibility that these slogans were intended to win their support for a revolution to replace capitalists with party bureaucrats. Albert Perez Barrow, a former member of the CNT who played a prominent role in the collectivization movement in Catalonia, gave a speech seven months after the revolution. 
which gives a good picture of the aspiring bureaucrats' hidden agenda. Quote, the immense majority of workers have sinned by their indiscipline. Production has fallen in an alarming manner, and in many instances has plummeted. The distance from the front has meant that the workers have not experienced the war with the necessary intensity. The former discipline, born of managerial coercion, is missing, and has not been replaced. Owing to the lack of class consciousness, by a self-imposed discipline in benefit of the collectivity. In an infantile manner, the workers have come to believe that everything was already won, when in reality, the real social revolution begins precisely in the period of constructing the economy." End quote. While Perez Barrow berates the workers as infantile, he does not consider the possibility that the workers' attitude was perfectly sensible. It is easy to see why workers expect to benefit by becoming their own bosses, why they should believe that replacing their employers with the state or an Orwellian anarchist council is good for them is quite a different matter. Inequality existed within collectives as well as between them. Invariably, the participants attribute the tolerance of inequality to the fact that it was impossible for one collective to impose equal wages unless the other collectives did the same. As Fraser summarizes the testimony of CNT militant Louis Santacana, quote, but the single wage could not be introduced in his plant because it was not made general throughout the industry. Women in the factory continued to receive wages between 15% and 20% lower than men, and manual workers less than technicians, end quote. In other words, it was impossible to impose equality so long as there was competition for workers. If one firm refused to pay extra to skilled workers, they would quit and find a job where egalitarian norms were not so strictly observed. Perhaps the most fascinating incident in Fraser's account of worker control involves the Tivoli Opera Theater. CNT militant Juan Sana replays, relays the details. Quote, Almost the only problem Sana had not had to deal with was the single wage introduced in the theater. It came to a rapid end in a dramatic circumstance one day when the famous tenor Hippolito Lazaro arrived at the Tivoli Theater where the union was organizing a cycle of operas at popular prices. He was to sing the lead. Before the audience arrived, he got up on stage and addressed the company. Quote, we're all equal now, and to prove it, we all get the same wage. Fine, since we're equal, today I am going to collect the tickets at the door, and one of you can come up here and sing the lead. End quote. That did it, of course. There had been several previous protests. That night, several of us union leaders met and decided at the very start that we couldn't leave until we had come up with a worthy solution. It didn't take long. Top actors and singers, like Lazaro and Marcos Redondo, were to be paid 750 pesetas a performance, a 5,000% increase over their previous 15 pesetas a day. Second and third category artists received large but differential increases, while even ushers were given a raise." End quote. If Sana had reflected further, he might have drawn a more general lesson from this incident. If there is competition, exploitation is virtually impossible. This principle holds whether the competing bidders are capitalists or worker collectives. This can be proved with a simple thought experiment. Imagine that a worker is able to perform a task which increases the sale value of raw materials by 10 pesetas. Imagine further holding an auction with capitalists bidding for this worker's services. With only one bidder, the traditional socialist story makes some sense. One bidder could offer a subsistence wage, and a worker might be desperate enough to take it. 
With two bidders, it is possible to imagine that the capitalists will collude, strike a corrupt bargain to shave their bids. How many bidders must there be before a collusive agreement simply becomes impossible? As normal auctions reveal, two bidders is often all it takes. With ten bidders, collusion is so difficult there isn't even any point in trying. The sellers could be desperate and the bidders wealthy, but competition drives the sale price up to the sale value of the product. Pablo Picasso could be penniless, on the verve of starvation, but with competitive bidding he would nevertheless be paid a fortune for a new painting. The buyers would be happy if competition were illegal, but so long as competition persists, buyers will act in their own interests, not the interests of buyers in general. In any modern economy, including that of Spain during the 1930s, there are not ten bidders for any given worker's services. There are hundreds, if not thousands. The auction is less visible than one in a hall with an auctioneer, but it is just as real. Every compensation package an employer offers is a bid for worker's services. With at least a few employers, competitive bidding forces workers' pay to equal the full value of their product. Why then are there some workers in capitalist economies so poorly paid? The simple but harsh answer is that their labor is not very productive. The more complex answer is that, given the availability of other productive factors, their labor was not very productive. A contemporaneous barber in the United States earned more than his counterpart in Spain because capital goods were more abundant in the United States than in Spain. The only long-term solution for Spanish poverty was to increase the supply of capital goods in Spain. Thus, once again, the militant tactics of the Spanish unions were grossly counterproductive. While Spanish workers should have done everything possible to attract foreign capital, they instead chose to frighten away a large fraction of, Spanish, of Spain's already meager capital stock. It is interesting to note that Spanish workers' standard of living only began to improve significantly after Franco relaxed his autarkic policies of the 40s and 50s. The real socialist complaint against capitalism is not that capitalism exploits workers, but that it prevents exploitation of workers. It prevents able workers from being exploited for the benefit of less able workers, the elderly, and children. As Horatio Prieto, a former CNT National Committee secretary, lamented, quote, The collectivism we are living in is, in Spain is not anarchist collectivism. It is the creation of a new capitalism, more inorganic than the old capitalist system we have destroyed. Rich collectives refuse to recognize any responsibilities, duties, or solidarities towards poor collectives. No one understands the complexities of the economy, the dependence of one industry on another, end quote. The problem, in short, is that under the new capitalism, the more productive collectives get rich and the others don't. The new capitalism, like the old, tightly links success and reward. Competition similarly made it hard for the anarchist military to exploit workers. As CNT military leader Royo stated, quote, the columns depended on the villages, they had no other source of supply. If there had been no collectives, if each peasant had kept what he produced and disposed of it as he wished, it would have made the matter of supplies much more difficult. End quote. It is always much more difficult to accomplish anything when you must obtain the voluntary consent of other people, for then you must pay them what they are worth. The Dilemma Part 2 Socialist Statism in spite of the harsh exploitation of the farmers by the anarchist military, even the limited freedom that the milder collectives allowed began to show a capitalist face. As Felix Carasquare, an FAI school teacher, describes his role at the February 1937 CNT Congress, quote, 
Then I got up. The cantonalism of the collective spelt the ruin of the movement, I said. A rich collective could live well. A poor collective would have difficulty feeding its members. Is that communism? No, it's the very opposite. Whose fault is it if one village has good land and the next has poor? End quote. Similarly, Thomas notes, quote, Wages differed from collective to collective, the criterion really being the richer the collective, the better paid the workers. This was an ironic, if doubtless inescapable, conclusion to the libertarian dream. End quote. Finally, Bolton observes that the fear that a new class of wealthy landed proprietors would eventually rise on the ruins of the old if individual tillage were encouraged was no doubt partly responsible for the determination of the more zealous collectivizers to secure the adherence of the small cultivator, whether willing or forced, to the collective system. End quote. Overall, however, the socialist ideologue had nothing to fear from the rural collectives. For the most part, capitalism had been stamped out by the only means possible, the state. The anarchist military was the backbone of a new monopoly on the means of coercion which was a government in everything but name. It then became possible to use the peasantry like cattle, to make them work, feed them their subsistence, and seize the surplus. Bolton approvingly quotes Kaminsky's account of Alcora, quote, The community is represented by the committee. All the money of Alcora, about 100,000 pesetas, is in its hands. The committee exchanges the products of the community for other goods that are lacking, but what it cannot secure by exchange, it purchases. Money, however, is retained only as a makeshift and will be valid as long as other communities have not followed Alcora's example. The committee is paterfamilias. It owns everything. It directs everything. It attends to everything. Every special desire must be submitted to it for consideration. It alone has say. One may object that the members of the committee are in danger of becoming bureaucrats or even dictators. That possibility has not escaped the attention of the villagers. They have seen to it that the committee shall be renewed at short intervals so that each inhabitant will serve on it for a certain length of time, end quote. What is to be done with someone who says that he neither wishes to serve on the committee nor consent to its rulings? Who says that he intends to work his own land, get rich, and refuse to share a peseta with anyone else? This person would receive the same treatment that any tax resistor in any modern state would receive increasingly severe threats and sanctions until he either submits or perishes. Fraser's interview with the former with the farmer Navarro clearly indicates that the anarchist committees were governments in the standard sense of the word. Quote, Once the decision was taken, it was formally left to the peasants to volunteer to join. Mariano Franco came from the front to hold a meeting, saying that militiamen were threatening to take the livestock of all those who remained outside the collective, as in Mas de Matas, all privately owned stocks of food had to be turned in. End quote. Martinez, another farmer, adds further details. Quote, he shared, however, the generalized dislike for having to hand over all the produce to the pile and to get nothing except his rations in return. Another bad thing was the way the militia columns requisitioned livestock from the collective, issuing vouchers in return. Having been appointed livestock delegate, he went on a couple of occasions to Caspa to try to cash in the vouchers unsuccessfully. As elsewhere, the abolition of money soon led to the coining of local money, a task the blacksmith carried out by punching holes in tin discs until paper notes could be printed. The money, 
1.5 a day was distributed, as a local schoolmaster recalled, to collectivists to spend on their vices, the latter being anything superfluous to the basic requirements of keeping alive, end quote. For comparison, one farmer states that pre-war he earned 250 pesetas a month. Even Greek and Roman slavery often recognized the slave's right to call something his own, his peculium, the one and a half pesetas of superfluous compensation the peasants received would probably have even struck many ancient slaves as somewhat stingy. Still, initially rural collectivization was indeed fairly cantonalist, and it is conceivable that eventually peasant mobility would have forced local committees to relax the harshness of their regimes. The anarchist leadership sensed this almost instinctively. Soon voices urged regional and even national federations, at a February 1937 Congress, Fraser notes, quote, Among the major agreements reached at the Congress were those to abolish all money, including local currency, and to substitute a standard ration book, to permit small holders to remain non-collectivized as long as they did not interfere with the interests of the collective, from which they could expect no benefits to organize the collectives at the district rather than the local level, and to refuse the Council of Aragon the monopoly of foreign trade, end quote. The self-limiting measures were clearly intended to shield the Council of Aragon from the anger of the central government and the communists. The rest of the agreement reveals an intent to permit even more severe exploitation of the peasantry. Anarchist historian Peyrats describes a later conference in June 1937, which made the CNT's long-term intentions even plainer. Quote, the National Committee of the CNT convened a national meeting of peasants with the express purpose of creating a national federation of peasants attached to the confederal organization. The primary objective defined in its statutes was the national integration of the agricultural economies of all the zones under cultivation, embracing both collectives and small proprietors. The Federation would accept UGT collectives and be responsible for technical consultation of all kinds through its regional branches. Small landholders, individual cultivators, and collectives attached to the Federation would have full freedom to initiate agricultural development in their respective zones, but they would not be subject to national plans designed to ensure the best crop yields. The transformation or substitution of subcrops for others of greater economic value and the combating of crop and livestock diseases. The federated cultivators were obliged to supply statistical data to the National Federation about current and projected production and whatever else necessary for general planning. The Federation was the sole distributor and exporter of produce. Cultivators could reserve enough of their production to meet their own consumption needs, but had to observe restrictions which might be called for at a given time to ensure the equal right of all consumers without discrimination. Surpluses were to be turned over to the Federation, which would pay for them according to local values or as determined by a national price regulating board. The Federation would facilitate the moves of peasants from zones short to cultivate lands to zones needed needing workers. It would establish relations with all the economic organizations of the CNT and other groups, national or international. It created an auxiliary service to even out payments across diverse zones, national and foreign. Solidarity and mutual aid, including compensation for fires, accidents, pestilence, sickness, retirement, orphans, would be available even to individualists not participating in the collectives." End quote. 
In short, the CNT intended to create an all-powerful state to rule the rural population under its control, to seize all surplus from them and pay them token compensation as it saw fit to relocate farmers to zones needing workers. Given the fact that the CNT assured the peasants subsistence but seized their surplus, it seems unlikely that any peasant would want to move. The CNT thought about this eventuality no more than a farmer ponders whether his herd of cows wants to be led to a new field. In January 1938, the CNT unveiled its plans to suppress the freedom of the urban collectives as well. As Fraser explains, quote, the CNT at its enlarged economic plenum in Valencia revised many of its previous postures. It agreed to differential salaries, a core of factory inspectors who could sanction workers and works councils, the administrative centralization of all industries and agrarian collectives controlled by the CNT, and effective general planning by a CNT economics council, the creation of a syndical bank, the development of consumer cooperatives, the following month, in a pact with the UGT, it called for nationalization of mines, railways, heavy industry, the banks, telecommunications, and airlines. CNT interpretation of nationalization meant that the state took over an industry and handed it to its workers to manage. The socialists interpreted it as meaning as the state ran the industry, end quote. Bulletin gives additional information about the CNT-UGT pact. It should be remembered that the UGT was comprised of both socialist and a communist wing. Quote, Although the pact affirmed the workers' control was one of the most valuable of the workers' conquests and called for the legalization of the collectives, it was a complete negation of anarchist doctrine, for it recognized the ultimate power and authority of the state not only in these two issues, but in such important matters as the nationalization of industry and the regular army. Nevertheless, the pact was enthusiastically received by the CNT press, even by some groups of the FAI, such as the Regional Committee of the Center. But in the long run, neither workers' control nor the collectives were even granted legal status. Hence, in retrospect, the pact appears to have served the ends only of the communists and their allies. End quote. For some anarchists, these pacts represented compromises. But then again, the CNT's initial programs were themselves a compromise between the anarchists who wanted total power for the CNT from the outset. As Bolton documents, from the earliest days of the revolution, many anarchists and anarchist journalists cried out for an anarchist dictatorship. These remarks often make it clear that even the anarchist opponents of seizing total power often agreed that once the nationalists were defeated, the anarchist dictatorship would swiftly follow. Quote, even the anarcho-syndicalists respected the small man's property. Some among them made it clear that this was only a temporary indulgence while the war lasted. Once the war has ended and the battle against fascism has been won, warned a prominent anarcho-syndicalist, Tomas Cano Ruiz, in Valencia, we shall suppress every form of small property and in the way that suits us. We shall intensify collectivization and socialization and make them complete. End quote. Total Rural Collectivization like total urban collectivization, was also an ultimate, if not immediate, anarchist goal. Quote, Those peasants who are endowed with an understanding of the advantages of collectivization or with a clear revolutionary conscience and who have already begun to introduce collective farming should endeavor by all convincing means to prod the laggards, said Tierra y Libertad, 
the mouthpiece of the FAI, which exercised strong ideological influence over the unions of the CNT. We cannot consent to small holdings, because private property in land always creates a bourgeois mentality, calculating and egotistical, that we wish to uproot forever. We want to reconstruct Spain materially and morally. Our revolution will be economic and ethical." End quote. It is evident that many of the Spanish anarchists had such a revolution in mind, a revolution which, like other modern totalitarian revolutions, would not only enslave the body, but enslave the mind. In this light, the anarchists' much praised focus on education seems far more malevolent. An overwhelming amount of evidence indicates that worker control never eliminated the greed, inequality, and competition for which the anarcho-syndicalists denounced the capitalist system. The classical anarchists repeatedly claimed that once the state was destroyed, capitalism would automatically collapse. They were wholly in error. Insofar as the state was destroyed, capitalism merely changed its form. It did not cease to exist. Genuine worker control essentially changed the recipients of the dividends, nothing more. The only feasible route for the elimination of capitalism was to create a new state, often given a new name such as a council or committee, and coerce the obedience by any means necessary. And that concludes our section today. Uh, tomorrow we will continue on to the philosophy of the Spanish anarchists. So hopefully you are staying tuned. Um, it's quite enlightening to reread this and to just see how awful these people really were is, as far as I can tell, there is absolutely no difference between the Spanish anarchists and any other totalitarian regime. Um, it's just obvious, and the fact that some people hold them up as an example of anarchism is actually very disappointing. Um, it just shows that... Um, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I'll give those people the benefit of the doubt that they are just ignorant of the history of how the Spanish anarchists were. Um, I won't be so quick to judge them uh, for not knowing that. But anyways, we will continue tomorrow. As always, proceed boldly against evil and be the radical idealist. Connor J. Nepo, signing out.